Good morning, Anthem. We are uh, continuing a series that we just started last Sunday, The Stewarded Life, where we're looking at God's call, and this is, will be our, our series through the summer. We're looking at God's call to steward our lives, to focus the energy of our life, to focus our resources, and to plan and to be focused in the domains that God has placed us in, whether it be our marriages and parenting, our careers. Uh, but the next three weeks, as we jump into this, and each week we'll be looking at a different kind of domain of life, what we're going to do over the next three weeks is begin by looking at three vital aspects of ourselves. In other words, where, where we're kicking this off is looking at what does it mean to steward our lives and to understand who we are as people created in the image of God. And I think it'll be helpful to kind of start with an illustration of why these three ingredients are important. Uh, my, when my wife and I got married, uh, she found she's a recipe follower. Um, I am not. I'm one of those people who she's baking, and then when she turns around, I like to like just sprinkle random things in that I think will enhance her recipe, and it drives her nuts. And, and so early on in our marriage, at some point, she, she decided she wanted to make this Indian dish, okay? And the Indian dish, it had this, like the main part of it was cauliflower, which should have been our first warning sign. Uh, and so we, we make this dish, and, and, we're, and, and she, we get it to the table, and, and we, she, she puts it on the table, and it's just this like soggy, wet cauliflower. Imagine a white plate with just soggy white cauliflower on it. That's what it looked like. And we we're like, well, let's try it, right? And then we ate it, and it was one of those, as soon as we put it in our mouth, it was like, this tastes like soggy, wet cauliflower, right? Like, this tastes absolutely awful. It's the only time in our marriage that we ever, like, after we made something, we just went immediately, like, just walked over to the trash can and dumped it in, right? And so what we realized was we had left something out of the recipe. Now, we actually don't know what we had left out of the recipe. We never returned to that recipe. I have not eaten cauliflower since. Uh, but what we realized was we had left something out of the recipe. And I know last week I made brownies, homemade brownies, and I thought it was amazing for our kids. And it was like dessert, and we're having brownies. And my kids were all excited. And then they went to eat them, and they realized Dad forgot to put the sugar in the brownies. And so it was like, you gave us brown dog biscuits for dessert, right? My kids are like, what's wrong with you? Why would you tease us in this way? Right? So we get it. Recipes, it matters that you have every aspect of the recipe, every ingredient is included in its right proportion. And, and what we're going to be looking at are three ingredients of ourselves. What makes us human? Now, the analogy breaks down because we can't actually just avoid adding any aspect of who we are. And in fact, it's there. It's a question of will we steward it? But, but the question is exactly that. Will we attend to these three vital areas of who we are? And will we steward them well? Because if we don't, then what happens is our life, like that message, just kind of becomes messy. It becomes flat. It becomes, uh, it lacks sweetness. However, you want to run out the analogy. So what are those three areas? We're going to be looking at today, is we're going to be looking at what does it look like to steward our souls? Our souls. Next week, then we're going to be looking at our emotional life. And what does it mean to steward our emotions and our experience of our lives? And then the next week, we're going to look at our bodies. 
Let's look like to steward our bodies. All of these, as I said, are ingredients. They all are mixed up. They're all interchangeable, independent, or interdependent. There's a, 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 a weaving of our bodies. We are embodied souls. These aren't disconnected, but it's helpful to step through each and every one of these, one at a time. And so we're going to look at today the first ingredient, how to steward our souls. What we're going to look at first is the spiritual ingredient. Okay, what is this whole spirit-soul thing? Second, the recipe for spiritual disaster in our lives. And then third, ways to steward our soul. So let's pray and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you've made us with souls that are alive to you. Lord, that you made us to know you, to walk with you. And Lord, we ask that today, wherever we're not attending to our souls, wherever we're not stewarding our spiritual life, wherever we're just not mixing it in, we're just avoiding it, whatever it might be, Lord, Lord, that today we would see what a great high privilege it is that you made us with the capacity to know you. You made us with souls that are restless till they find their rest in you. And so, Lord, today would you just open our eyes to places where our souls are going astray or where we're just not focusing on our souls so that, Lord, we would just walk away with a joy and an excitement and an earnestness, Lord, and pointing our souls towards you. And so, Lord, give us wisdom in this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The spiritual ingredient, uh, you, I, we are spiritual beings. We are spiritual beings. Now, it, I know when I say that, it sounds incredibly obvious, but it is one of the most profound things about us, that we have these things called souls. So what does it mean to have a soul? Well, we're given a picture in Genesis 2. It's the first time when, when God creates man, and it says in Genesis 2, 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So what we see here is that God breathes a spirit into us. If we didn't have souls, we'd be nothing but dust. We'd be nothing but matter. Now, what this means as well is it means we're not merely the sum of our biological impulses. We're not merely the sum of our desires or our hormones that are firing in different ways, that our, our minds and how they're firing. It's, it's more. We are not just sacks of flesh. We are more than that. Now, our, we are embodied souls. And again, the next weeks, we'll look at our soul in relation to what does it mean, these, this emotional thing and emotions and experiencing life, and what does it mean to have, be embodied. But our soul is the core part of us that is eternal. It's made from God who is spirit for life with God. Theologians have called this spiritual sense this, this reality that we have within us. Think of it almost like an antenna that's in us that's constantly searching for this signal. Our souls always trying to find the signal of God and be realigned with Him, to walk with Him, to know Him. Uh, theologians have called this, uh, it's a phrase, quorum Deo. Quorum Deo, it's an old phrase, which just means to live before the face of God, or to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. If our souls lack God, 
if he's distant, if we don't know him, if, if we're just trying to avoid him, if we're running from him, then as Augustine said, the, the famous theologian, he said, our souls are restless until they find the rest in you. If our souls are off, everything is off. That's why after, one of the things I think is interesting right now is fascinating. There's this whole thing, uh, quickly, I'm going off script here, but there was a, there's this whole thing over the last uh, probably 70 or so years is something called the secularization theory. Some of you may have heard of it. The idea was as we become more technologically advanced, uh, you know, phil- philosophical thought continues to, and progress happens, human progress and civilizational progress that will just essentially leave that God thing behind because we now empirically can understand ourselves that we largely live just in a physical plane, everything is material. There's none of this spiritual nonsense. And what's interesting is that even the original uh, articulators of that theory, of the secularization theory, even they have denounced their own theory. Guys like Peter Berger and different famous sociologists who have said it actually is not coming to pass. If anything, even though, yes, right now the stats are that church attendance is declining, actually spirituality is on the rise. In, in other words, we thought that because after everything that happened with the Industrial Revolution and the, and the uh, progression of technology, we assumed for a time that humanity would kind of leave off that, all that spiritual stuff. But in fact, what's happening is we're actually going after it more and more with more and more and deeper of a hunger for it. And so right now you're seeing all kinds of spiritualities that are kind of developing and kind of mixing here and mixing there and trying to put this thing together because everyone is actually searching. In fact, I always say it's, in some ways, it's not like people just don't go to church and then they don't do anything. Like they're, they're now at the yoga studios and different things because there's this searching, this searching for God. Our souls are looking. This is actually why in Psalm 27 we're coming here because David, you, this is King David, he wrote this psalm, and this is him crying out to God, and he's searching for God, and he gives us a picture of what we're meant to have in relationship to God. Look at verse 1. It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? So David lives with the sense that he's, he, he understands we're meant to live in this place of what the Hebrew Bible or Hebrew calls a shalom. Just this state of peace and the presence of God. In other words, things are as they should be. He understands there's a state of being that his soul is searching for that isn't filled with fear and anxiety, but just this deep peace. Do you ever feel that? It's meant to be in the, with God. Verse 4 it says, one thing, David says, I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. We're made to have that sense of the nearness of God. We're going to come back to that verse a little bit later. We're made to have a sense, to, like that sense, like a magnet in our soul, that there's something there. We're meant to be near to God. Verse 8 then, it says, you have said, seek my face. God says to David, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. God calls us to be in relationship with him, and our souls resonate with that reality until they find it. And then verse 13 and 14, when he ends, he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In the land of the living. I'll look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. What David's saying is in this life, 
in this life. It's not some like we're supposed to just, once we're disembodied spirits and floating away into the phantoms of heaven, then we'll experience God's presence. No, he's saying in this life, we are meant to know God. In this life. Your soul is longing in this life, and God promises that in this life, we're meant to experience his presence. Now, this is building on, and just to set the stage, we all throughout, we, we saw this a few weeks ago, but all throughout the Old Testament, following the fall. So God created us in Genesis 2, breathed his life into us, gave us that spirit, gave us a soul. But following the fall, God's people, as we saw, were sent. One way you could, you could describe what happens by the end of Genesis 3 is God's people are sent from God's presence, but they're sent with the promises of God. So they're sent from the presence of God with the promises that God would restore his presence. And, and the entirety of, of, of Scripture, of the story from Genesis to Revelation, is of God restoring the fullness of his presence with his people, of us being returned essentially to that garden state. That's what the whole Bible is about. And what happened was for a time, historically, God drew near and provided a temple where he'd be present with the people. This is why David here refers to drawing near to God in this physical temple, in a building. But then eventually, the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus walks in perfect obedience. If you think about it, Jesus' soul was perfectly attuned to God's spirit. He dies our death, and at the resurrection, as we just saw in John, Jesus's, and this is very key, Jesus' first act, if you remember a few weeks ago when we finished out John's gospel, what does Jesus do in his first act with the disciples? When he sees him when he's resurrected, he walks into the room, and, and he sees him, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. It says he breathed on them and then said, receive the Holy Spirit, right? And so you read that, and you're like, that's kind of a strange thing to do, right? Like, one, it's like, Jesus, tic-tac, please, you were just in a tomb, right? <laughs> you have grave breath. Uh, but then at the same time, or, you know, do you know, not know about COVID protocols? Uh, but Jesus is saying, I'm recreating you just as I did. I'm recreating you and restoring you to that original reality of God breathing into you. I'm breathing into you a new spirit. Breathing into you a new life, restoring it. And so God gives us a new spirit, one that lives attuned to his Holy Spirit. This is why then in Scripture, I know I'm hitting a lot of things here, but you have to see how all of these things in Scripture all fit together, like the puzzle pieces all come together and form this grand tapestry where this is why in the New Testament then, David was praying in the presence of God in a temple, and the New Testament it says, now my spirit will come to indwell you and make you a living temple. And then we become a temple because God no longer invites us to draw near to him in a physical temple. He says, I will come to dwell within you by my Holy Spirit, and I'll make my presence with you. And so we become this temple. This is why in Romans 8, Paul says that God's spirit resonates with our spirit. Why? He is the spirit of comfort and peace and presence and joy. And so here's the thing. What our calling is to steward our souls, our calling is, you can think of it, we've used this illustration before, but it's, our calling is we, we can't make, like control the spirit of God, control everything, but our job in stewarding our souls is to show up every day and to essentially like, think of it like packing kindling around a fire where you're in God's word and you're seeking God and whatnot and you're fanning into flame the spirit, another New Testament way of thinking of it or framing it. 
until, and we wait until the fire of God falls. And in our life, we have the truth of God. We have the, the rhythms of drawing near to God and praying to Him and coming to Him. And when the fire of God comes, we're packing that kindling every day, and eventually the fire of God comes. And when it does, it essentially has something to burn because of that everyday stewarding of our souls. So, but before we can focus on more on that, I'm going to um, kind of unpack that. It's a good word picture for what it looks like to steward our souls. What I want to do is I want to look at first what what's the recipe for disaster? How does it all go wrong, right? Like, what are we, what are we up against? Uh, so the second one, what's the recipe for spiritual disaster? Uh, you would think if we, and I, I know we're in a church, and so we're all like, well, of course we have souls. Like, I'm in a church. That's kind of one of the first things you believe. <laughs> I'm doing church. But here's the thing. Why do we fail? Like, listen, I'm a full-time pastor, okay? It's literally my job to attend to my soul, okay? Uh, people pay me money to attend to my soul. <laughs> and yet, I often don't. Yet, I often don't. And so if we know it's so important, it's such a core part of who we are, why don't we attend to our soul? I think there are some clues here on what, what David's saying, because first, life doesn't exist in a vacuum. Right? Life doesn't exist in a vacuum. Life, what we see here in Psalm 27, is life is full of trouble. Life is full of suffering. Lots of urgent things coming at us that are, are, just, are, are coming in and crashing upon our lives and demanding our attention. And we've said this before, but your life, so here's how to think about suffering. Here's how to think about trouble. Uh, it is part of life. You are in one of three phases of life. You are either in a season where you are about to enter trouble. You are in a season of trouble. Or you are in a season of exiting trouble. And then the cycle starts again. Welcome to life, right? Like, this is the reality. Life is full of trouble. And the thing is that those sufferings, those needs, the appetites, the desires, all those things are often, they exist in the physical or the material realm. And what happens in responding to them is the urgency of those things can often crowd out attending to our soul. It's kind of that, I remember... Uh, when I was younger, Lauren had a great-grandmother who, my wife Lauren, had a great-grandmother who once, she had, one, you know, one of those old lines that I somehow never heard before, but I said something about, yeah, it's just hard to be praying, just been super busy, and she said, uh, you're, uh, what is it, you're never too busy not to pray? Something like, that's exactly the point, you're busy, you need to pray? Like, but yet, so easily, the busyness or the troubles of life crowd out focusing on our spiritual life. We kind of like, that's the add-on. If I can get to it, then I'll get to it. But yet, what we see biblically is that's the foundation of our entire lives. So, perhaps, here's just some of the troubles that we may face. You might resonate with some of David's. If you look first at verse 2, he says, When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. The first thing I honestly thought when I read that was, David experiences zombie apocalypse. Uh, <laughs> they assail me. They eat my flesh. They stumble around, <laughs> right? Like, but David experienced, and think about our troubles. Oftentimes what our troubles do is they actually make zombies of us and our souls, that our troubles come in and they just overwhelm us. And it feels like it's like literally eating away at the energy of my life and the core of who I am and just kind of picking away at who we are. It can leave us like spiritual zombies, right? David continues in verse 
3, talking about physical threat. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet, yet I will be confident. Oftentimes when there's a physical threat, as we'll see with these next ones, it's so easy just to think about in the physical realm and not attend to our soul. It's easy to think instead of cultivating our soul, it seems like the quicker fix, right, is they get better circumstances. But yet in the midst of it, God calls us to be cultivating our soul because there's no amount of circumstances that can be good enough to bring us that inner peace that we're ultimately seeking. But then David also experienced deep rejection. Look at verse 10. Listen to this. He says, For my mother and my father have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Is there any deeper rejection than a mother and a father rejecting you? They've forsaken him. When those closest to you turn on you, meant to be life's safest areas, and they become actually this deep source of almost violation, betrayal. Perhaps it then goes even further than that to like a social death. Look at verse 12. It says, give me up, not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. So David was having people, rumors and gossip and innuendo all around him, just tearing him apart, his reputation, his name, everyone looking at him and only seeing him through the lens of a, of a lie or exaggeration. And, and see, what's interesting about all this physical trouble, social trouble, say emotional trouble, all, all this trouble that he's facing, whatever troubles in our lives, oftentimes, again, what happens when you have that trouble is it's easy to only see it because it's external and it's situational around us. It's easy then to put all of our effort, all of our energy towards just fighting what is physical. This is why Paul warns in the New Testament, like, it's going to be really hard not to just wage war against flesh and blood, but to see that's in the realm of the principalities and powers. It's a spiritual battle, first and foremost, before it's a physical battle. Life is full of trouble, but if we're not careful, troubled lives lead to troubled souls, and that becomes the real capital T trouble underneath the physical trouble. Now, how, how does that happen? Uh, because, again, it often occurs in the physical realm. We're tempted to think and respond just in worldly or physical or material ways and ignore the soul. Uh, notice how David responds throughout this. You have like in verse 7, he says, Hear, O God, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. He goes, in his trouble, he goes to God. But if we're honest, often we don't go to God. Right? We kind of ball up our fist and kind of bury it in our soul and go to fight. Now, What's interesting is, one, that's a, it's a recipe for spiritual disaster. Um, often the Psalms will cry out, this, this cry you'll hear again and again, where, where does my help come from? Oh, you, Lord, my help comes from. But what happens when we look elsewhere for that help? Um, the opposite is found in Psalm 1. If you, if you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 1. Uh, there's a progression, and this is just why I went ahead, the recipe for spiritual disaster and how we go, we end up walking down this path. It, it says this, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, 
Now, now notice the progression here. We have walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. What Psalm 1 is laying out right at the beginning of the Psalms, right as soon as you enter in, is it's saying you can either with your soul steward it like David and bring in the midst of the troubles of life, continue to bring your soul to God, continue to live before God, seek him, and direct your soul to him every day, every moment. Or you can live your life in what this psalm is warning about. Instead, what we begin to do, notice the progression here. We, we can say that first there's this strolling, right? That there's a strolling, a, a reasoning. It says walking in the counsel of the wicked. There's kind of this worldly logic or material way of thinking where we begin to think instead of attending to our souls, we begin to just think, how do I fight this? How do I? And, and instead of attending to our souls, we just externalize everything and begin thinking, what's, what's the quick fix? What's the, what the, not the, not the sayings, but what's the advice? Grabbing on to whatever we can get. And, it, and it, the psalmist describes it as almost going for a stroll. We begin to walk in it. And you can imagine walking and beginning to kind of consider it to begin to kind of turn over the inner logic and begin to kind of go after it. And, and instead of being where you're at resolutely here, you begin to move over here just slowly but surely on kind of this journey away from God's word with the reasoning and the thinking and the wisdom of the world. And then it describes it next as then this, this standing. It says, nor stands in the way of sinners. So what happens then is maybe we're, we're angry because of something somebody said about us or just troubles in general in life and this bitterness and anger begins to take over and we begin to think and rationalize that bitterness and anger and, and getting back at somebody. And we begin to walk in that, but then it says, then eventually we get so far into it that we begin to stand in it. That we begin to see it as reasonable and we go, this is resolutely where I'm at. And then after a time, then it says it's not only that you begin to stand in it, that you've walked in it and considered it and stood in it, and now you begin to stand in that place of bitterness, stand in that place of anger, stand in that place of rage. But then it says you sit down in it. Look at where it says next, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Where we go from just kind of going for a stroll and turning and not attending to our souls and going to God's word and going to God's presence, but just kind of walking in our own wisdom and that rage and that bitterness take over. And then we begin to stand in it for a time. And then we begin, we just say, I'm resolutely here. And then we do all kinds of things in our day, right? We form echo chambers. Like you can literally find any kind of a Reddit sub channel, right? That'll reinforce whatever you believe. And you'll form an echo chamber there. We can sit there and say, no, this is where I'm at. See, what happens when we don't attend to our souls and steward our souls in the midst of life's troubles is we'll begin to go for a stroll and then we begin to stand in sinful patterns and then we begin to sit resolutely in those patterns and in that lifestyle. And the question for us today is, are, are you there? Are you in a place where you're saying, yeah, for a long time, like I haven't really attended to my soul and the troubles of life that are just constantly overwhelming, this urgent realities that are just crashing in on my life and my calendar. Have you begun to go for a stroll? Are you beginning to stand resolutely or sit in this place of maybe it's rage, maybe it's bitterness, maybe it's unbelief? Are you there because for a time you haven't been attending to your soul, stewarding your soul? So what David says, David gives us as he points us to how to steward 
our souls. Psalm 1, 2, right after it, it says, but, so blessed is the man who walks not in the council, stands or sits, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So he gives us the but, what, what does it look like instead? And what we get in Psalm 27 is David giving us a picture in several different ways that we meditate on the Lord, even in the midst of the troubles of life. So he offers four ways, four ways that we can attend to our souls, that we can steward our souls. The first is, don't just listen. This is what David says. Don't just listen to your heart, speak to it. Don't just listen to your heart, to your soul, speak to it. Uh, verses one through three, it says this, I, or sorry, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. David has this source of confidence, this truth that's outside of him that he's standing on. In the midst of all these situations, he's going, why would I fear? I know the Lord. I know they're coming against me. Ultimately, they're the ones who will stumble and fall. I'm not the one who will stumble and fall. Like David has this confidence because what he's doing in the midst of these things coming at him is he's speaking truth to his soul. If I were in these situations, I'd be listening to my soul. I'd be running around like a chicken with my head cut off. Like, uh-oh, uh-oh, right? If we listen all the time to our souls, it actually doesn't lead to truth. It can lead to even further trouble. And so what David does, he says, you must stand on truth. Something we'll probably look at next week with emotion, uh, stewarding our emotions. Uh, something I heard this week that I've been really mulling over is that Rumination without hope, the way I would put it, is leads to ruin. That rumination, just dwelling on life, thinking on life without any kind of hope, without any kind of truth, it's the recipe for spiritual disaster. And so in the midst of all the things that come at us in our lives, what David says is speak to your heart. Speak to your heart. So the question is, where is your soul? Who's speaking to your soul? What's the messaging that your soul's receiving day in and day out? And are there inputs that are healthy, that feed your soul, that point your soul to a source of truth and hope? And ultimately, to be able to speak to your soul, though, you have to have that source of truth, that source of hope. That's not just you're making it up, but it's actually something out there you can take hold of. So that's the second one, which is then we seek God daily. So the next way that we can steward our souls is to seek God daily. If we're going to speak to our souls, then how do we do that? We need a source of truth. And so look at first verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, I will seek the Lord, I will seek him, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. We're going to come back to unpacking that verse a little bit more, but then look at then verse 8 where he says, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. He's seeking the Lord. And then verse 11, he says, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Isn't it interesting that in the midst of all these chaotic things and troubles in David's life, David doesn't run away from God, but he runs to him and seeks him and says, Lord, he has an open mind, an open head, open heart, open hands, and he just puts himself before the Lord and he says, Lord, teach me. Help me understand. Help me ho take hold of who you are. He seeks him. Do you have that disposition in your life where daily you're going, God, I can't fix all this stuff. I can't make sense of all this stuff, but Lord, I know you're the Lord. Will you teach me? I'm going to seek you and come to you. God says, seek me 
bring your soul to me. One of the things, if you're wondering, how do I read the word, things like that, we have a little thing, five steps to a personal devotional time. If that's something you want, you can jump underneath the info lights, and that kind of gives you, it's a one-stop shop, right? It kind of gives you all the steps to establishing, like in the morning, reading my Bible, praying, things like that. So if you haven't done that, and you're going into this summer, and you haven't established something like that, make this a summer where you're in God's Word and you establish even five, ten minutes a day seeking the Lord in the morning. This summer is the time that can completely change the trajectory of your life and eternity. But then three, we contemplate God's presence. Now, this is interesting. Verse four, it says, again, one thing I've asked, I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord and His temple. Do you know that the word contemplate, the word contemplate literally comes, this will be a verse, a foundational verse for it, where it comes from the words contemple, with in the temple, with God in his temple. It's this idea of dwelling with God in his presence. Contemplation comes from the very idea of being with God, God being present in our lives in every moment of our lives. And there is nothing that will stabilize your soul in whatever circumstances you find yourself in, like having constantly or regularly practicing and contemplating the presence of God in your life. Now, we don't have to go to a temple. We don't have to turn our, our, you know, from here or in our bodies and pray towards the east at some physical wall that's over in Jerusalem. We don't, we don't have to anymore because now Jesus says, I've put my spirit within you, and now you are a living temple. So wherever you go, God is present by his spirit. And so contemplate that God is with you. Literally, guys, one of the things I'll do in, in our day, I think more and more, I'm not a nature guy. Like, I'll just admit it. Like, we were talking the other day with some friends about where they go on vacations. They're all like, we want to go on hikes in Colorado and all this. And I was like, boring. Right? Like, I was just like, it's not me. Like, and, and for some of you, you're like naturally like, oh, I would just want to be in a field of grains, running my fingers through it or something. I don't, like, be on a mountain. I'm just like, I've seen a mountain. There's another mountain. There's another one. All right, let's go to the city. Let's get some good food. Right? Like, that's me. But I've even found lately with just the, with how much technology is in our life and distractions and notifications it is really helpful to simplify things and get out in nature and just sit in the grass or to just feel like my bare feet in the grass or in on the, the forest floor or sitting on a log in the little forest we have behind our house where it's just all you hear are the birds, you hear nature. It's just to get away and actually be present and sit and just pray and invite God into that moment. See, so often when we're sitting at work and we're sitting there and, you know, you're in a boardroom and it's like a stressful situation and our, you know, we're, we're, it's almost like we're not even present, like, and we're not even aware of God's presence in that moment. And we're just overwhelmed by all these things that are going on. We're on a sales call. We're meeting with a client. We're, we're in the middle of our kids melting down and it's so hard to be present. But here's the thing, God invites us. I think part of why we aren't able to be present and know that God bring, invite God into that moment where so it doesn't just seem hopeless is because our lives rarely are present in the moment. And God invites us. God gives you this moment now. God gives you the moments that he'll give you for the rest of your life. God gives you eternity with him. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every single moment of your life, and God desires to draw near. And you not to live like an abandoned orphan child, not knowing in the midst of the troubles of your life if he's near. He says, I am here. Contemplate my presence. Know I am near. 
The, the fourth one then is to wait. And this is an interesting one in verse 14 where David ends and he says, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I, uh, I'll be honest, when I read this, um, it, sounds, <laughs> it, it sounds annoying to me. Okay, I'm just going to say it. Like when I read and I see in Scripture, wait. You, you know like downtown, I think it's here downtown where you have the, the thing, you press the button and it's like, wait, wait. Like my, my children like love that button. We're just sitting there waiting to cross. It's like there's no cars and we're just waiting. And my son Calvin, he's just sitting here like, wait. Wait, like, I'm like, can you stop doing that? But it's almost like when we hear wait, we hear like this monotone, soulless, cold, like, wait, 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 when we hear it. At least I do when I read it. That's my default. It's like, really, God? Do we just sit and wait? But here's the thing. This isn't passive. This is active resistance of our flesh. This is active resistance of the world. In fact, ironically, waiting on God is how we plug into the source of power. It's waiting on God. Acknowledging, I mean, part of waiting is just you have to be able to acknowledge humbly, I don't have all the answers. Guys, think about right now, like I was sharing last week, like a lot of Our world, I keep, when I'm talking to business leaders and whatnot, they're using words like disruption, and we don't know what to do. Everyone around, and you might be sitting there going, man, I don't know what to do in the workplace. I don't know what to do right now with society or the the economic markets. We're all going like, man, we don't know what to do right now. And guess what? Maybe it's a time where God's saying, yeah, you don't. You don't hold the future in your hand, but you can know the one who holds it but you might not have all the answers. And maybe right now we're all in a season where it does look like waiting on the Lord intentionally, coming before him and saying, Lord, I I don't have the answers, but I know you do. And Lord, I'm going to focus on bringing my soul to you and coming and drawing near to you and laying before you all my my troubles, all the thing, all my wanderings. And here's the thing. Sometimes the most profound spiritual breakthrough happens when the approach isn't, you know, the Silicon Valley thing of like move fast and break things. Sometimes most profound spiritual breakthroughs don't come when we just move fast and break things. But we just stop and let God speak. Kind of almost like just handing him the keys to the car of our life. Recently, just with reading through Scripture every year and reading back through the Old Testament, I'm really struck this year by how long God's people waited on him. Abraham waited a lifetime. Moses waited 40 years. Then with Israel, 40 years in the wilderness. God's people waited generations, thousands of years for Christ to come. They were faithful. Here's the thing. In a culture that values just instantaneous fixes, efficient answers every single time, what if right now God is actually calling the church and us in our personal lives to just wait on him? Instead of just running to trying to have quick answers to every single thing, not just denying that we actually don't know what to do. Not trying to just medicate ourselves and numb ourselves to it, escape it and just entertain ourselves away from it, just to bury our heads or to quit. Quit our jobs, quit our marriages, quit our, I mean, quit our churches. All those are knee-jerk responses when we don't know how to wait, and it just seems like, I want to find an answer, but if there isn't an answer. 
See, the thing is, David's not just kind of saying wait in a passive way or generic way. David actually alludes in verse 1, you can almost bracket the psalm with this waiting. And what does it look like to wait? Verse 1, David says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? What David does there is he takes this imagery. What, what does he mean, my light and my salvation? It sounds kind of nebulous, kind of like... What's that mean, light and salvation? Well, what's David referring to? I know you will guide me in the darkness of life, when the uncertainty of life, the nights of life, I know you will guide them through because Israel waited in the desert and they waited on you. And then where did, how did you lead them? Even in the midst of the uncertainties, in the midst of the night, in the midst of the vulnerabilities, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the troubles, you led them as a pillar of light. What David's saying is God will be our salvation. He will be our light. He will whatever troubles you have right now. Whatever darkness is brewing in your soul, whatever difficulty, whatever illness, whatever those things are, what he says is here's the one thing you can take hold of and your soul can take hold of. Take hold of me because even in the midst of the night, even in the midst of the darkness, even in the midst of the trouble, I will be a light. I will be a pillar of fire. I will lead you. And so to steward your life is and to steward your soul is that every day you would show up and you would, whether it's with seeking me and setting aside time to seek me, maybe it's just getting, setting your alarm 10 minutes earlier and getting up and having your Bible open the night before and the coffee's ready to go and I'm just, I'm going to be there, Lord, in a journal, just something to write down thoughts and prayers to God. I'm going to take that step and begin doing that. I'm going to seek you and be in your word. Perhaps it's setting an alarm on your phone Throughout your day, maybe two or three times a day, just to pause wherever you are, at lunch or whatnot, and to just wherever you are, to put your feet on the ground and feel yourself in where you are, and to remind yourself, I am here and God is present with me. He's here, even in the midst of that meeting I'm about ready to go into in the boardroom. He's here, even in the midst of those kids are going to wake up possibly five seconds from now and start screaming, right? whatever it is, you are here. And to begin to practice the presence of God, because what he's saying is if you pack that kindling, if you just in simple acts of faith, you steward your soul by directing it to me and you pack that kindling in your life, I will come even in the midst of the troubles and I will bring my spirit, you fan the flame of the spirit, I will bring my fire and I will lead you through. You don't have to run ahead, you don't have to run away from whatever it is that's difficult. You don't have to quit. You don't have to bury your head in the sand. But come to me. Bring your soul to me. Life is full of troubles. But your soul doesn't have to be. God offers your soul the fullness of his presence. And ultimately, that's what all of your longings, what your soul, what it is longing for. But the only question is, what steps do you need to take to steward your soul? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we, we thank you for this profound reality that you have given us souls so we would know you. Lord, teach us to turn our souls to you, to live before you, to live for your glory, to live under your rule and reign. Lord, give us joy in our souls. But Lord, whatever those, those things are in our life, Lord, whether it's just that we're, we're 
overwhelmed by the urgent things of life and we're not turning, taking time to turn our souls to you in the midst of the trouble, Lord, would you give us diligence in taking small steps to turn our souls to you? Lord, give us just insight into perhaps what voices we just need to silence, what inputs we need to shut down in our life, what boundaries or limitations we need to put on, whether it's technology or whatnot, Lord. Lord, help us to carve out rooms so we would point our souls to you, Lord. Help us to pack that kindling in our life and fan your work spirit into flame. And Lord, I ask for every individual here, Lord, would you bring your fire? Would you bring the light of your presence? Would you bring a sense of peace and your salvation, a sense of your power and your goodness? That we may not know what the future holds, but we know the one who holds it, that we know that you hold our lives in your hand. And Lord, would our souls just rest secure there? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.